This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we are going high and we're going low. We're going to talk about the disinformation industrial complex and we're going to talk about porn. And as always, we're going to talk to smart people about these things. Uh, first up, we've got Magdalene Taylor from Mel Magazine to walk us through the crazy OnlyFans story. Uh, it's The story is so weird that we taped an entirely different conversation just yesterday, and now we have to tape a new one today because there's new news here. Um, OnlyFans, as many of you probably know, uh, is this big and growing and really interesting subscription porn platform um, that last week announced they were kind of getting out of that business and now have announced, no, no, we're going to stay in that business. Um, Magdalene is going to walk us all through it and, and beyond that sort of talk about the weird place that porn has in our culture where it's both totally pervasive and also increasingly hard to run a legitimate porn business. So we will talk to her about all of that. And then we're going to talk to Joe Bernstein, who normally writes about tech for BuzzFeed. He took a year off to hang out with some smarties at Harvard's Neiman Lab. And he made a provocative splash last week with a big essay in Harper's about disinformation and misinformation and what those things actually mean and why we don't really know what they mean, and why it's not terrible for Facebook and Twitter and YouTube to have a disinformation problem, and how we in the media should be thinking much more critically about all of this stuff. You should definitely read Joe's story. It's called Bad News. It's in Harper's. But even if you haven't read that story and don't plan to read that story, you will enjoy our conversation because Joe is whip smart. We should have had him on this show a long time ago. I'm glad we're having him on now. Okay, first up, Magdalene Taylor from Mel Magazine. I'm here for the second time in two days with Magdalene Taylor from Mill Magazine. Hi, Magdalene. How are you? Hi, good. Thank you for having me again. Our audience is all going to hear one of our interviews. We've done now two. And the reason we've done two is we were talking about OnlyFans yesterday and what's been going on with them. And then as right as we were about to go to press, I don't know what you go to press with in a podcast world. Um, right as this episode was about to come out, there was new news. So we had to redo our interview. So Magdalene. Briefly tell us what OnlyFans is and what happened last week, and then we can catch up with the newest news. So OnlyFans is a social media platform that allows content creators to charge a monthly subscription fee uh, for subscribers to have access to their content. And OnlyFans likes to promote itself as a non-adult platform, um, meaning that influencers and non-adult performers can share their content on there for a fee. However, it is wildly more popular among sex workers and adult content creators. However, last week um, on Thursday, OnlyFans announced that it was no longer going to allow such content. Uh, what's changed once again, though, is that today OnlyFans announced again that they have decided not to prohibit adult content. So before we get into the mechanics of, of what happened and maybe why it happened, just for context, OnlyFans, my understanding is, well, now I think, five-year-old company that lets adult performers um, sell access to pornography, essentially, or, you know, we can debate what the word means, to fans directly. 
um, sort of the the substack of porn. And it's a big change in the way porn is produced and consumed because for a long time, um, you got a lot of porn for free on the internet. Um, porn performers who'd been paid a lot of money now weren't making much money at all. Uh, the studios who previously made porn had sort of had the same problems that, you know, record labels had had during Napster. And OnlyFans looked like a really interesting way to both pay performers and to give consumers exactly what they want. Um, and this was a, a and I, this was an increasingly sexy business. I'm using that word intentionally. Generating a lot of revenue. I think $2 billion in last year was wildly popular. And it looked like as of up until yesterday, up until this morning, that they'd gone and thrown that business model out. Am I missing anything in my summation? No, that, that sounds about right. And so yesterday you and I were talking and sort of speculating why OnlyFans had basically gotten rid of the thing that was powering OnlyFans. Um, and we were kind of guessing. And the guessing was this was payments providers, maybe MasterCard and Visa, maybe other folks involved in either taking money from from uh, people who are paying OnlyFans or distributing money to OnlyFans performers were, were finding reasons to not work with OnlyFans. Um, and then I think even after we spoke the CEO of OnlyFans did an interview with the Financial Times and said, yeah, that actually is the problem. Um, he called out some specific banks, not MasterCard, which is one one we've all been thinking about. He's pushed at uh, Bank of New York for some reason, said that was a big problem. And then today they said what? Today they said that these banking partners have assured them that OnlyFans can support all genres of creators, as they put it. So basically, never mind what whatever we said. Um, things are going to carry on as normal. Go back, go back to to doing whatever you do on OnlyFans. Right. They basically announced that they had just changed their mind. That the policy that they were previously going to enact in October wasn't going to happen anymore. That their uh, terms of service and acceptable use policy would remain as they were prior to that announcement last week. Right. And so they have not provided any additional detail. We don't know if there are any other strings attached or asterisks. Um, you know, as of yesterday, that they were saying, well, you can still do all kinds of things that are basically sexy. You just can't do you can do rated R stuff on fans. You can't do rated X. Now we're back to do whatever you want, as far as we can tell. I'm sure there'll be more reporting on this. I was talking with someone who talked with some bankers. There's some reference to maybe they're going to set up some sort of uh, biometrics and, and ID requirements for performers um, that presumably will assuage some fears that people are maybe underaged or are being forced into performing this stuff to basically make people, make payments providers feel more comfortable about the idea that they're not involved in entrapment or, or anything like that. Does that sound like plausible to you? It does sound plausible that OnlyFans could be putting more money into checking the backgrounds of all of the performers that they have on the platform, that they do already require identification for creators to sign up on the platform, but perhaps uh, doing more surveilling of any background characters that might appear on a creator's work or things like that. But there's definitely still a lot of hesitancy from creators that this change will last forever, at least. 
Mm-hmm. Because you've, you've, you've had a platform that for the last few years was a reliable and interesting way to make money. People were making real money on it. Um, suddenly say, actually, that's not going to work. And now they're saying, well, actually, it is going to work. It doesn't instill a lot of confidence. Where do you think, if, if you were someone who was on OnlyFans, you were making money there, do you think you stick around? Do you think you look for a new, uh, a new home? Are there new homes for people who were on OnlyFans? Well, there are there are new homes. There are homes that have been around for actually the last couple of months that you know have seen a huge increase in use since that announcement. That are more openly pro sex work. Maybe offer um, alternative payment forms like cryptocurrency. Um, I believe that a lot of performers probably will continue to use OnlyFans for as long as they can because it has been such a huge source of income for them. Um, customers are more comfortable with that platform, so it's it's much easier to retain your clients on there than to have them sign up for an alternative platform. However, I think the ball has already gotten rolling for a lot of creators who don't trust OnlyFans, who want to at least begin establishing themselves someplace else where they can feel a bit more secure. So I think that's going to continue. So. In theory, right, the problem that was was bedeviling OnlyFans up, up until this morning um, could bedevil any other site, right? Any anyone who who takes my credit card and uh, takes that money and then redistributes that money to performer might someday say, "I don't want to be in this business. Uh, whatever money I'm making here isn't worth reputational risk. Uh, supposedly, uh, people who pay for porn are more likely to dispute charges. There's all kinds of issues here. We'd rather just not be in that business, and that can, in theory, affect any other platform." Yes, absolutely. Pornhub, for example, still does not accept credit cards after MasterCard and Visa uh, pulled off of the platform in December 2020. So they still require either some form of crypto payment or a direct transfer from your bank account. So other platforms. So if I want to, if I want to get my pornography from Pornhub, I, I need, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not in in the crypto business yet. I have to give them access directly to my bank and do one of those ACH transfers. Yes, you do. I mean, Holy this is shit. for. This is for their Pornhub premium. Uh-huh. Pornhub still offers. If I want to pay, for, if I want to pay for something on Pornhub, right? If you want to do it the more ethical way, yes. <laughs> so that seems like a, a a not tenable solution. People have floated the idea that crypto, you just mentioned it, is is a solution to this. How would that work? How would a regular person use cryptocurrency to pay for this stuff, and how would a performer get that money in their account? Well, there's definitely a big learning curve to using cryptocurrency, but it is increasingly becoming accessible. There's there's plenty of apps out there. I mean, Robinhood is one of them where you can buy Bitcoin and uh, a few other cryptocurrencies. But the exact mechanisms of how one uses cryptocurrency to purchase pornography and then how sex workers can then transfer that cryptocurrency to uh, whatever their crypto wallets might be, and then convert that to U.S. dollars, is not exactly clear to me. Yeah, me neither. And, and, and I'm also hung up on the idea that yes, I can go and buy. I bought Dogecoin like an hour before Elon Musk went on SNL on on on, uh, on Robinhood just to see if I could do it. And the answer was yes, I could. And I think I've lost seventy percent of my my fifteen dollar investment since then. Um, doesn't and I can live with that loss, but it seems like if I was if I was reliant on taking in some sort of cryptocurrency for my work, it just doesn't seem tenable. I'm sure there are smart people listening to this podcast who can tell me how stable coins will work and how all this will be solved eventually. But it seems like 
we're some period of time before this is actually a decent, a, an acceptable and sort of mainstream way to pay for anything. Right. But at the same time, there are people who are working really hard to make crypto more accessible, um, accepted in more places. So, I mean, ho hopefully that will be a more tenable option for people. Um, because, I mean, at the same time, traditional banks and credit cards, platforms like PayPal and Venmo are also often not very secure and friendly to sex workers. Uh, sex workers get their accounts shut down all the time. So even these traditional platforms that we might consider pretty stable are not actually stable to sex workers. I'm really struck by the gap between sort of what consumers want and the sort of mainstreaming of porn and, and you know, sex positivity. And uh, I mentioned yesterday, my 11-year-old son is, is walking around reciting the lyrics to, to wet-ass pussy. Uh, stuff's very mainstream. People seem increasingly comfortable with it. Um, and at the same time, um, you've got financial institutions um, being very wary of wanting to be in this business. I can understand moral and, and practical concerns, but you'd think money would sort of win out in the end. If people want to do this business, it's legal. It's increasingly accepted. You have a beat at Mel Magazine where you sort of focus on this stuff exclusively. Um, why isn't capitalism just sort of smoothing everything out here and, and making it easier for people to buy and sell the thing that they want, which in this case is access to, to porn? That's a great question. And I mean, this most recent change with OnlyFans seems to be maybe an example of capitalism winning out uh, in that regard. I mean, one one issue that's been really popularly touted by the groups who do not want OnlyFans to be able to accept uh, mainstream credit cards um, is the potential for uh, child pornography, um, other forms of sexual exploitation, non-consensual content, um, and obviously these are really bad things that do not that should not have any place um, on a platform or any ties with traditional banking. Um, so, with that in mind, I, these particular ethics do win out over capitalism. However, those ideas have kind of become boogeymen, um, kind of a, a catch-all for all of the ills of pornography. And so it's pretty easy for uh, anti-porn lobbyists to cite something like child pornography to make even these major financial players say, wait a minute, we don't want any affiliation with this. We'd rather give up some potential profits here than take on reputational risk or, or other risk real or imagined. Um, or maybe we just morally, we don't want to participate in this. Um, uh, even if there's only a little bit of, of exploitation, um, we don't want to participate in that industry. Um, and you see versions of this, right, with, with um, legalization of drugs, where you can buy and sell drugs now fairly, fairly easily in lots of different states, but it's actually very hard to make a business out of it because of, of different banking regulations. Um, and we're seeing a version of it up until now with, with OnlyFans itself trying to raise money. They've, they've been out there for a while trying to raise money from sort of the traditional suspects um, who would give, who would normally throw money at a big growing internet consumer platform. Um, and they haven't chipped in yet. And we, we'll see if this change affects that. Yes, that that's correct. Um, I mean, one question there is whether the it's the venture capitalists themselves who don't want to put money in or if it's their investors who tend to be sort of big institutions or sovereign wealth funds. Um, 
we're kind of getting a little in the weeds there. But what what do you think happens now to OnlyFans users and to OnlyFans performers? Do we, everything just snaps back into place, or do you think some of them permanently decamp for other places? I don't think everything snaps perfectly back into place. Um, as I've seen a lot of performers report, uh, the announcement last week led to an immediate drop off in their income. Um, people very quickly uh, removing their information from the site and no longer. Uh, serving as paying customers, and consumers so, left right away. Why would why would a consumer leave immediately? Because these changes hadn't even gone into place yet, right? They were supposed to go into place in October. If I'm right. if I'm buying something on OnlyFans and they make an announcement, why would I immediately leave? I imagine maybe it's just misinformation, mm-hmm. or <laughs> now that OnlyFans is back in the news, they've they've got it on their head that oh, you know, maybe I don't need to be on here anymore. But in any case, it has, for a lot of performers, led to uh, an immediate decrease in income. And so a lot of of sex workers are striving to uh, build back what they've lost. But because of the ease of using OnlyFans, at least in terms of garnering more customers, I do not think that the majority of uh, sex workers on the platform will immediately turn away from OnlyFans in favor of other sites, at least not yet. You, you work at Mel Magazine, which is this thinky, interesting uh, digital-only publication originally started by Dollar Shave Club because um, they wanted to have a cool publication. Then it went away last spring, and now it's back. I'm curious, is, is, this, your, is this your main beat, writing about uh, sort of internet and, uh, internet and sex and porn? Yes, right now this is my yeah. main beat. Um, I do. Did you raise of, your hand and say I want to do that, or or did they assign it to you? Or I'm curious how you got into it. Yeah, this has always been an interest of mine. Um, I care deeply about the sex worker community. I've had some affiliations with it myself, um, and so it's just kind of always been something I've known a good bit about. And it just uh, it makes sense right now to have a publication that is covering OnlyFans more deeply. It's great to have you as a resource, and thanks for coming on. I'm curious, do you have a sense of, of your readership? Are they people who are interested in the business? Are they are they sort of drive-by readers because it's something titillating? Any sense of sort of who's consuming your stuff? I think it's definitely a mix of both. Part of the reason why we cover OnlyFans and various performers so deeply is because OnlyFans does not actually offer a great deal of discoverability of new performers. And so what we're trying to do is kind of uh, allow for potential customers to see who might be out there, see what kind of content they might be interested in consuming and kind of serving as a guide for uh, people who might want to subscribe to some new performers on OnlyFans. Well, thank you for being a guide for us through this weird story. Um, I, th- I gather this story is not over. There's weird, there's other shoes to drop, I would imagine. So I'm sure we'll talk someday down the road. Magdalene Taylor from Mel Magazine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Magdalene. In a minute, we're going to talk to Joe Bernstein. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm here with Joe Bernstein 
formerly of BuzzFeed News. He took a little time off. He's going back to BuzzFeed News. Uh, in between uh, working at BuzzFeed News, he, he did some studying and he wrote a really, really interesting thinky piece for Harper's called Bad News. And I wanted to have him on to talk about it. Hi, Joe. Peter, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. This is a great story. Um, I have not read Harper's in a long time, so it's great to have a reason to open up Harper's. And um, this is a piece that is squarely in the the intersection of tech and media and policy. And it's the kind of stuff we want to talk about on this podcast. It's a thinky piece, has a bunch of $10 words in it. And I wanted you to sort of explain, <laughs> explain it in tweet form to start with. So sure. what is bad news about? Okay. Bad news, uh, which is a great headline, it's not my headline, is about a critique of the media and specifically of big tech that comes from legacy media outlets for the most part, from think tanks and from academics, which basically says that uh, the problems, the like deep social problems in America can be attributed largely to uh, incorrect information, propaganda on social platforms. And what I wanted to do in this piece is not say that there are not enormous problems with information online, but I wanted to push back against the idea, first to push back against the idea that these things are necessarily causative. Is that a $10 word? It definitely um, is, but I think we could suss it out. Okay. And, and so first of all, push back against the idea that these things necessarily are responsible for like all of the social problems in the United States. And secondly, to think about some of the assumptions behind uh, the idea that information online is like totally responsible for problems in America. And more than that, think about who that worldview, that framework might benefit. Uh, and that, that's what the piece is about. Yeah, I think you have several interesting ideas in there. The big one, I'm going to try to condense what you said, is that sort of post-2016, run-up of 2016 election, then afterwards, we suddenly all became aware of the idea that there was disinformation and misinformation, most troublesomely on, on Facebook and then other platforms as well, depending on, on what we were looking at on a given day. And that was causing all kinds of problems. It was the tech platform's fault that this stuff was there and it should be cleaned up. And then the implication was if we cleaned it up, we'd get back to normal. Right. Am I doing that fairly? Yeah. And then, so that's exactly where the piece starts. And I basically question whether there ever was a normal. I mean, first of all, we have to think about not just the bad things the tech platforms have enabled, but also all of the people who were never represented to the media, for good or for bad, right? I mean, crazy conspiratorial lunatics, but also like people of color, poor people, uh, just lots of groups that never had a voice in the media suddenly had a voice in the media. And so when you're thinking about back to normal, you can't just think about the bad things that have emerged since, it, you know, this weird sort of new post-2016 era. You also have to think about all the people who have a voice who didn't before. And that used to be a standard version of any tech company or any tech person's response to any of this was like, yeah, there's some bad, but there's also a lot of good. And prior to sort of 2016, uh, before the tech press and general press got much more critical of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, that was just sort of generally understood that the internet was bringing us all these great things. In fact, it was, you know, we, we over-romanticized it. Now we sort of swung back the other way. Um, one of the interesting ideas you, you bring up here is that 
disinformation, misinformation, one, we don't really know what it is, but two, the idea of, of fighting it has become its own industry, um, that there's sort of a, a business it's a business component to this. And also that that the idea that there are people, that there's organizations, that there's media organizations scrutinizing this is actually to the platform's benefit. I wonder if you could tease that out for me. Yeah, I'll start with the last piece of that. And I, I don't want to over-torque it because, I, 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 you know, these things are complicated. But the platforms are huge because they're ad businesses. Everyone knows that. Uh, and for ad businesses to succeed... Uh, the people who buy those ads have to believe in some way, shape, or form that their ads are are converting customers, that they're taking people who don't know about products or who are on the fence about a product and making them buy. And so if you kind of step back, it's in Facebook, it's in Twitter, it's in YouTube's interest to be seen from the perspective of their customers who are ad buyers as persuading people. Really good at persuading, exactly. And so then... In some ways, against that interest for them to say, wait, no, bad content on our platform actually has no effect. Right. And, and, and I think that's why you saw, and this is in the piece, you saw like, compared to like, you know, other giant industries that like pollute things uh, like the, you know, oil industry, for example, tobacco industry. You didn't see tech push back all that hard against the idea that they were powerful enough to do this. In fact, tech has long sort of tried to be a partner in the efforts to clean up its alleged, um, you know, toxic waste. And I think that in and of itself is significant, how fast they've admitted that, yes, this is a problem that we're so powerful. By the way, we're so powerful, buy our ads. We're so powerful, buy our ads. And also, by the way, this is a newer, a newer version, is don't break us up or hold us back because only a company as powerful as us can actually uh, monitor and regulate us. Um, yeah, you, that's a which, that's a by great the way, point. I think is a reasonably effective <laughs> argument. Um, I think YouTube's going to do a much better, has much more resources to sort of police YouTube than anyone else would. But ne- neither here nor there, I guess for the for the. No, moment. that's a point I wish I had made in the piece because I think it's supportive of that. All right, I can be in the next Harper's piece. Um, and there is, and you, you you spend a little time saying, basically suggesting that lots of advertising is bullshit, which is something that people in advertising have been comfortable with in general for a long time. And I spend a little time in 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 the ad world. I should spend more. It does seem like for some kinds of advertising, particularly on Facebook, um, it really is an effective platform. Um, not. Here, not the Don Draper, we're going to tell you about Chevrolet in two years from now when you're in market for a car, you might buy a Chevrolet. But here's something I'm going to shove in your face on Instagram and you might click on it. And it seems like the people right. who buy those ads have a pretty good sense of if I spend $2 on this ad, I can make $2.50 back. Um, but if I go to 3 bucks, it doesn't work. And they have a pretty precise understanding of what those ads actually do and don't do for them. Yeah, and I should say I'm not like deeply expert on internet advertising. A lot of this argumentation comes from a really provocative book by a guy named Tim Wong, mm-hmm. uh, who was a public policy lead at Google for a long time. He's incredibly much smarter person than me. And he's now uh, at Substack. Right. Uh, we should have him on, yeah. Yeah, you should. Um, and his argument is um, both an old and a new one. Uh, the new component of it is that uh, the sort of line about the attention economy uh, popularized by uh, another Tim, Tim Wu, it misses the fact that attention on the internet is not as standardizable, that is not as good as advertisers want it to be. And then the older component of it is, and there's, I think there's a fair amount of economic research to back this up, 
that it's very hard for advertisers to know if they're converting like new customers or people who already wanted to buy their products. Right. And I think that's a point that you can then generalize to political ads, for example, um, you know, to the people who are like allegedly um, swayed by the Trump 2016 Death mm-hmm. Star, you know, were these people who saw Russian misinformation or like Brad Parscale's, you know, death ray of, of political ads? Or are they people who are already like a little wackadoodle or just conservative Republicans um, and they saw this stuff and they support it because they support it? Right. Uh, it was in the Trump campaign's interest to play up how smart they were about digital advertising. And, and before Brad Parscale, it was it was Jared Kushner on the cover of Forbes saying this guy won the election. And the answer and the reason why was that he had bought Facebook ads. Yeah. I mean, um, vic- victory has a thousand fathers, right? And then the flip side of that was, and I think one of the reasons that the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and it was a real scandal, but but was so resonant, was that it was a data breach that people believed helped elect Donald Trump. Um, Had it been a data breach that resulted in something else, I don't think people would have cared nearly as much. And also because the Cambridge Analytica guys seem in retrospect now to be real hucksters and were saying that they could do all this stuff with this data that they absolutely couldn't do, that they were just sort of your standard, you know, that they were run of the mill hucksters more or less. Yeah. And, you know, Peter, like, again, this Cambridge is something that I've like peripherally reported on, but uh, like a common kind of like reporters over like whiskey's conversation is like that story was like way, way overblown. Um, I think a lot of reporters feel that way. Um, and just like maybe don't haven't figured out the right way to 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 push back on it. So to that point, you, the 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 idea that there's sort of a, a an ecosystem, an industry that has grown up around disinformation and misinformation, and that either knowingly or not knowingly, there's a lot beyond the platforms. There's a lot of people who have a vested interest in sort of making this making making disinformation and misinformation and the fighting of it sort of a a codified sort of industrial thing. Um, and you seem to be raising an eyebrow about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to get sort of too academic here, having spent a year reading all that stuff. But um, I think there is a tendency in this world to apply the language of science to information um, and propaganda uh, and to sort of make it sound as if there's someone who can sort of sit above all of it, calling balls and strikes with like complete, um, you know, scientific accuracy, when in fact... Um, a lot of this is merely political. And to your point uh, from earlier, like, for example, would the Cambridge Analytica story have been such a big deal if it had been a breach of the RNC and it had helped Hillary Clinton win the election? I mean, I don't want to get into that because that's mm-hmm. a whole its own can of worms. But I think more broadly, uh, the point is that, first of all, from the point of view of a lot of news consumers, the term disinformation is merely a scientific sounding way to say, I don't agree with this information and I want to discredit it without addressing what's in it. Uh, And I think that's a problem. I don't think the media has done a good enough job defining misinformation and disinformation. Um, They use them interchangeably a lot. And beyond that, I don't think these definitions aren't steady. And then I also think that at times we've been too quick to say misinformation, disinformation, that's that. We don't need to explain to the public what's going on. 
Right. And then again, the, the, you can see how the tech platforms really want clear labels around this, or even if they're not clear, they just want someone to say, yes, that is banned. And yes, that's acceptable, right? That's That has been their response throughout most of the Trump years, um, now, now into Biden when dealing with um, anything relating to the election, anything relating to um, the coronavirus is the CDC or this agency has said this is wrong, so you can't publish it. And right. one of the problems we found is that that guidance changes, right? At the beginning of yep. the pandemic, all of the platforms had rules against uh, selling masks online. Yep. Because the guidance was don't wear masks. And yep. so people would be shamed if Google let a stray mask add on. Right. Um, and yeah, and mean, down the I, line. And, and, and there's a new one now about, about questioning the origins of the coronavirus. You couldn't before. There was a period where you couldn't say it might have been grown in a lab. Yep. And now you can. No, I mean, it's so interesting. And it goes to this real like tension, which is that these companies, which are relatively new in the grand scheme of things and like disrupting all these industries actually crave centralized authority to tell them what to do uh, or at least get them off the hook. Yeah, get them off the hook, have authorized sources of knowledge that will let them make their decision, you know, make easier decisions. Um, and you talk about the press's role in this. You had a great line in here. I want to try to quote it. Uh, the rules about verboten information have led a generation of ambitious reporters to find an inexhaustible vein of hypocrisy through stories about disinformation. Um, so I think I know what you're talking about. I think those are the stories that we've seen a lot of and we saw literally yesterday, which is this thing is on this platform. It's against the platform's rules. Why won't right. they do anything? Yesterday's example was uh, the guy who said he had a bomb in front of the Library of Congress was live streaming on Facebook for 70 minutes before they cut it off. And I don't mean to dismiss that reporting. It's good to hold it up. Um, it's, I want to call it crude, but not bad. It's just sort of like basic, like this thing broke the rule, stop it. Yep. I've written a bunch of those. I think you've written some of those. Is, is, is part of your piece here a mea culpa, like I was misguided or, or this is the wrong way to do it? Or are you just saying it is what it is? I think it's somewhere between those two things. Um, I, I've heard that kind of reporting. It's not my coinage called like hall monitor reporting. Mm -hmm. I think like with everything with these platforms, it's case by case. Some of them are very important. Like the, the message or the sort of takeaway from these pieces is always the same. It's always the tech platforms are making up these rules as they go along. Uh, they apply differently to different people. Like whether you're Donald Trump or just um, some schmo uh, in, in the middle of nowhere, that matters. Context matters. And so, you know, I think these stories uh, have a place and I think they had more of a place during the Trump administration because of this sort of related phenomenon of the tech lash. Um, I think I hope people have started to get the message about um, about about the rules that the platforms write for themselves. So there's one vibe I got from your story, it's not an articulate way of putting it, that I felt a little bit conflicted about, and maybe you do too, which is, I think all your points are well taken. That said, it does really seem, and I can't articulate how or pinpoint it, because I can't, um, that the platforms are responsible for new things or things at scale that we haven't seen before. We've always had cults and delusion and people behaving poorly. Um, our history is full of it. But I don't remember seeing something like QAnon shoot up that 
quickly and, and that pervasively, um, almost out of nowhere. It didn't mm-hmm. come out of nowhere, but it seemed like it came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems like that cannot happen without the platform seeding and spreading. It eventually gets amplified. It gets to Donald Trump. It gets to Sean Hannity. There's all sorts of conventional ways it gets amplified, but it does seem like the platforms um, do have a special and new role in spreading. If you don't want to call it disinformation or misinformation, let's just call it bad stuff. Yes. First of all, I want to say this piece is a provocation and I wanted to encourage this conversation. Um, I think it needed to happen because I think finding the right language and finding the right way to describe this stuff and the right context for it is really important. And it's important because ultimately I think our audiences will trust us more if we put it in the right context. When we talk about new social phenomena, take QAnon, what I've really tried to do in my career is approach these things with a sense of humility that I don't have the answers because I do think they are new uh, in important ways. And journalism is a explanations business in a lot of ways. And I don't want to throw my hands up and say they're impossible to explain these things. But I do want to say, slow down. Let's think about all the other factors that go into something like QAnon. Let's think about all the other factors that go into American uh, vaccination hesitancy or uh, you know the election of Donald Trump, any of these things. And let's not have the flip side of the techno sort of utopianism of 2008 to 2016. Let's not lose sight of the whole picture and just say, uh, this is because of um, a website that started, you know, 15 years ago or 17 years ago. In my Twitter feed, I saw a lot of uh, uh, a lot of political journalists uh, 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 admiringly passing this around. What's what's the the general response you've gotten from this? And and by the way, have any of the folks who spent a lot of time doing the disinformation and misinformation reporting reached out to you and said, hey, 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 stop um, it? I think the criticism has been fairly it, it's been good. I mean, I, so first of all, political reporters really like the piece because why? Just spell that out. I, I don't know. I have some theories. I don't, I don't want to say for sure. Um, I think political reporters understand the malleability and kind of um, the, the gamesmanship of media, maybe a little better than tech reporters. And I think they're a little less literal-minded in some ways than tech reporters, and they understand that you have to look at a lot of these things in context. But I, I don't want to generalize because there's been plenty of tech reporters who've reached out to me and said this needed to be written. Interestingly, I've had almost no pushback from the disinformation research community, the academic research community. Uh, many of the people within it have said, we've long known about these problems with terminology, with um, attempts to sort of make scientific judgments about something as qualitative as uh, information, uh, as political information. Um, and so I don't want to say that I feel validated about that. I'm just glad that people are having this conversation um, because I think I think it has to happen. Joe, thank you for having this conversation with me while your baby's napping, while you're on vacation. Uh, you get back to work after Labor Day, right? That's right, Peter. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You can find Joe on BuzzFeed News after Labor Day. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Thanks again to Joe. Thanks again to Magdalene. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel for editing and producing this show and being nimble about it when, when stuff happens, news breaks. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. Thanks to you guys for listening. It's the end of August. Fall is going to be weird, a lot weirder than we thought it was. 
hopefully not too bad for all of us, but definitely we're going to have some improvisational uh, elements to uh, the last couple of months of 2021. Anyway, you understand. You're living it right now. Okay, this is Rico Media. We'll see you next week.